in this day and age, we're, we're just not used to hearing teaching. We're not used to hearing sermons. Even if we're here every week, it's not something that comes natural to us. Open our spiritual eyes and ears that we could hear to, to us through the sermon. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 59, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 12 through 21. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And then if we jump to verse 12. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the island their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. That a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So we are in the Advent season. We've been in it now for two weeks, as you see from the children's lesson and from the new decorations up the front. And I don't know what Advent means to you. We know that the word itself means waiting. I remember as a child, for me, it meant waiting for school to finish. Our season is slightly different and it's summer and we're waiting for school to end and it usually uh, came with a, I guess you would call it a Christmas or end of year concert. And pretty much every year we would sing different songs and I remember in infant school in the, in the youngest grade, pretty much every year we would sing Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. And uh, I had no idea what it meant, I just knew it was a better round than row, row your boat. 
And it wasn't until I came to the United States that I realized that there's actually quite a lot of history in the song uh, Kumbaya. In the 1950s, it was a song of hope. It was sung at protest meetings in the civil rights movement. Uh, it's a song, I think, that sort of captured a idea that things are going to get better, that there's hope, that we can fix this. There's an optimism, but I think it's a naive optimism that we as humans can completely solve the problem. And we see that optimism running through all of these types of movements, the civil rights movement, the Black Lives movement, the Me Too movement, good movements, highlighting injustice, but the hope that they're going to fully fix the problem becomes naive. It becomes almost discouraging when we look at both the progress but also the lack of progress that we make. Then that hope from the 1950s in terms of the song, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya, my Lord, began to turn to a sort of cynical realism. The first person to use it in the political realm was actually Huckabee in the Republican primary of uh, 2012. And he was being asked, this fractious, horrible Republican primary, which is so out of control, how are you guys going to resolve this? And he said, what do you think we're going to do? Sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya and just pick somebody? Looking back, those days seem almost tame compared to the primaries we have now. In 2019, Barack Obama used the phrase when he was talking to Netanyahu, saying that this problem in Israel and Palestine is not going to be solved by everybody holding hands and singing Kumbaya. We look back to Barack Obama's statement of what's going on in Palestine, and maybe we look optimistically back to that time. We realize that there seems to be this cynical realism that exists in the world for a reason. So, it sometimes seemed to me, as we move into this season of Advent, we have to work out what does this reflective listening, this reflective waiting, really look like? How do you react to the feel-good spirit of Christmas? How do you do waiting? Are you filled with naive optimism that everything's going to be okay, or cynicism? How do you react is the Christmas spirit the folk song of our day? A reminder that there is goodness deep within us that just needs to be released. A hope that one day all of us, when the goodness is released within us, will solve the problem. A naive optimism that we have it within us to make the world right. Or is Christmas spirit for you just a cheesy feel-good sentiment? a cynical realist in you coming out, giving you choices. You can either embrace it as a distraction from the problems of the world or avoid it because it reminds you of the problems of the world. How do you deal with your cynical realism? How do you wait? How do you address Advent as a season of waiting? So this passage that we're reading today was originally a message to a people who knew something about waiting. At least it was from a prophet who knew the people needed to know something about waiting. And it can teach us 
how to wait and how not to wait for Christmas. So let's embrace the wait and see what Isaiah has got to say. Let's start with how not to wait for Christmas. This passage from the book of Isaiah comes at a time where the two kingdoms are divided. There's Israel in the north and there's uh, Judah in the south. Things are starting to become quite fractured. There's, the divide is not just uh, a political divide. There's also sort of a moral and a spiritual decay. There's a cultural connection to Yahweh, but the worship is sort of bland and dull and in name only. Life has progressed not away from, but through and beyond Yahweh. He's a feature on the landscape, but he's not the core and the center of the people's lives and worship. And God has given eyes, big eyes, given Isaiah big eyes, to stand back from the confused scene that he's in and see from the end to the beginning. And the text that we're looking at today and the book of Isaiah itself has a couple of ends and beginnings. First of all, it's the end and the beginning of Israel, in a sense, or the time and the, and the kingdoms that, that Isaiah was living in. But it's bigger than that. It's also a lens and a look, a prophecy that expands to all of redemptive history. Now, the book of Isaiah, books, uh, chapters 1 to 39, they point to a coming catastrophe for the people. They point to the fact that they're going to be taken over by Assyria and Babylon. They're going to be taken into exile. It's a prophecy that the way they're living, that the decay, that the political mess, that the social mess, the lack of worship, the lack of the centrality of Yahweh in their lives is going to lead to some sort of temporal judgment. Chapters 30, 40 through to 55 talk of a golden period of comfort where they've returned from exile and they've, uh, there's a restoration in a sense of what's going on. And so Isaiah's both telling them it's going to get really bad and then he tells them, it's going to get really good. And if he'd stopped the book there, that would be fantastic. But instead, he went on with chapters 55 to 56, which is part of the book that we're looking at today, where he said, you know that golden era? It tarnishes and decays, and I'm going to have to restore it again. And it's almost as if we're looking here at what we looked at last week. The destruction with the hope through Noah, and then here's the destruction again in terms of the exile with the hope through the restoration and the rebuilding. But it's not enough. It's not complete. It's not doing the job that needs to begin. So I wonder, how would you, if you were listening to this, if you were in church as an Israelite, listening to Isaiah preach, how would you react? How would you hear that? Would you get past the distractions of Christmas, doom, gloom, and zoom? Doom and gloom in the pulpit, then zoom off to do the Christmas shopping. If you, and if you did get past that, where would you go? Where in chapter 29, the gold is tarnishing. That promised restoration that's coming, the restoration after the exile, which hasn't even happened yet, is coming. Is that just so far off that it doesn't really matter? Is it just some sort of concept in the future that hasn't really hit home? The judgment hasn't even happened. The exile hasn't even happened. Is that tomorrow? Is that the day after? Is that so far away that it doesn't matter? 
What headspace are you in as you're listening to Isaiah preach? Now, his description, his description of the decay, which is, remember, post-exile, after the return, two people pre-exile, actually sounds very like what they were living in pre-exile. It's almost like they went through that whole process and got back to the starting place. And not only is it like pre-exile, post-exile, it also sounds like now. Let me read it to you. And I want you to tell me how you respond to this. Verses 14 here through to 15a. So justice is driven back, and the righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Now, if you reflect on that, if you think about that, if you apply that to our context, do you believe it? Do you think that's true? Do you put that through the test and think that's real? Now, some of you, I think, probably believe that too much, and some of you believe it too little. Is justice driven back? Does righteousness stand at a distance? Has truth stumbled? Can honesty enter in? And I'd just like you to pause for a minute. I'd like you to actually sort of dissociate from all the things going on around you. And I just want you to reflect for a minute on, well, politics, for example. Let's look at Ukraine and Palestine. Is justice driven back or is justice happening? Is there righteousness standing at a distance? Has truth stumbled? Can honesty enter in there? What about national politics with our extreme polarization and truth that seems to be a casualty of, partial, of partisan war? Is justice being driven back? Does righteousness stand at a distance? Has truth stumbled? Can honesty enter into that context? What about in the workplace or the school? Do you find those to be places of decency? or manipulation and exploitation. Think back over the last five years. Do a little scale of analysis. Decency, manipulation, and exploitation. Has justice been driven back? Does righteousness stand at a distance? Has truth stumbled? Can honesty enter in? What about in your family? Has your family been impacted by mental illness, divorce, other sorts of fracture, death, loss. Is justice driven back? Does righteousness stand at a distance? Has truth stumbled? Can honesty enter in? Which way are you going to go with this? Black, white, gray? How do you assess this text? How do you internalize what Isaiah is saying here? How do you hear him preaching this sermon? Now, my heart usually says, either black or white. Is it that bleak? Sometimes it feels like that. Is it not that bleak? Sometimes it feels pretty good. It's black when I'm confronted by death or loss or family fracture or exploitation, when it seems more personal and despair and hopelessness sets in. And it's white when things are pretty good. I can hold on to the good and I can make space to live with the bad. I can rejoice in the hopefulness. My head says then, 
given my emotional world, that it must be grey, right? But which grey? Which tone of the kumbaya am I singing here? Naive optimism? These are solvable problems. We can overcome, we can fix this. Evil is just a byproduct of circumstance. That's the shallow philosophy, philosophical standpoint of our age. Evil is defined externally. And it can be fixed with some sort of system. Uh, we sort of tried Marxism, that wasn't so hot. I think we moved on then to communism, that didn't work so well. And we're trying capitalism. I don't know what you think. You can be the judge of that. Can we solve the problems of the world through politics, science, counselling, decency, kindness? I th when I'm in that space, when my head's in the positive grey, when I've got that naive optimism going, I can sing it. Kumbaya, my lord, kumbaya. I can embrace that, right? That Christmas spirit. But there are times when I'm in the black too. Or the grey has moved more towards the black and the cynical realism sits in. And the problems are complicated and unsolvable. And I'm faced with family dynamics or work dynamics, which are just too intractable to get out of. And they weigh on me. And even though I know it's not all bad, it's hard and it's overwhelming. And it's hard to find hope and a way forward. And then for me, I can embrace the Christmas spirit either in one of two ways. It can either be the great distraction. You know what? This has been an Annus Horribilis, to quote the Queen, the previous Queen of England. This has been a horrible year. I just want a break. Let's get together. Let's have a party. Let's, let's bring the family together. Let's get the spirit of Christmas going as a distraction. Everything's still terrible, but at least I can embrace the Christmas spirit for a moment. Or Christmas is going to remind me of all the fractured mess and horrible things, and so I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to skip it. It's too hard. In fact, get rid of those songs. Don't go to the mall. Keep the radio off. Stay as far away from Christmas as I can. So are these my choices, naive optimism? Or cynical realism, where I say, kumbaya, my lord, kumbaya. Or is there another way of doing it? <sighs> what is all the waiting of Advent about? It would seem that reflective waiting can really suck. We're confronted by naivety or cynicism. We either have to look past uh, what we're trying to avoid, or we've got to embrace the distractions that we can use to get in the way of the things that upset us. Who came up with the idea of Advent? You know, let's rush straight to Christmas. What's this reflective waiting all about? Well, the good news is that Isaiah doesn't leave us with that picture. Last week, before Isaiah, we had Noah, and, and Kyle went through that with us. We looked at one righteous man, flood as a judgment, and a covenant promise. No more floods, no more wiping out the world like this. This week, after that, there's no righteous one. There's no one who is righteous. And it's not like God is not looking. Look here in verse 15a. Truth is nowhere to be found. 
and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. The Lord looked and was, was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Last week there was Noah. This week there is no one. Now, your head said grey. You weighed them up and you said, sometimes it's this way, sometimes it's that way. Well, guess what? God's head says it's black. God's head, there's no one. There's nobody. Now, it's not that there are no people doing any good. If you look back there when we, at the beginning of verse 15, we read that. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. There are some people at some point in time who are doing some shunning of evil, and they become prey. In a sense, the evil that's there eats them up. So it's not that God is saying there's no space for goodness, there's no pieces of people that are good, but what he's saying is that nobody is righteous. Nobody is where they need to be. Nobody isn't somehow deeply corrupted. The corruption is deep, and it's much, much deeper than we realize. Evil is not just a system. Evil is in people, and it's just not in those people. It's in these people. And it's not just in these people. It's in this person. And you can personalize that for yourself. Politics, science, kindness, the Christmas spirit, they're not going to cut it. They're not the answer. There is no one righteous person here at all. And God sees it, and he calls us out. And he says it. There's no one righteous here at all. And as Kyle said, Noah, last week, Kyle is not righteous enough. And he brought the stain of sin, the rebellion from God with him through the flood into Isaiah's world and into our world. There's some realism for you. There's some serious realism in the Bible. It's not a fairy tale. Evil is real. It's deep. It permeates. It corrupts. And then we get the prophecy. And it's really, really beautiful. Isaiah is looking beyond his time. He's looking beyond Assyria, beyond Babylon, the two nations that do the exiling. Beyond Israel's homecoming from exile, even beyond Jesus' first coming, he's looking to Jesus' second coming as the conqueror of evil. Now, picture this. I'm going to read it to you. And picture this. Maybe even close your eyes as I read it. This is the second coming of the Lord. This is the Lord coming in judgment. And hear these words because they are beautiful. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on, his, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself up in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay Wrath to his enemies, retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will hear the name of the Lord. And from the rising sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord 
drives along. Now, there's some things to note here. First of all, in verse 18, we see wrath to his enemies, retribution to his foes. Evil is destroyed. There is massive judgment going on here. We also see in the beginning of verse, uh, at the end or in the middle of verse 19, that he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. And didn't we hear last week that there were no more floods? No more floods going to wipe everybody out. And here we see another flood of judgment coming through. Isn't this contradictory? No, because this judgment that comes is either wrath or retribution, like we saw in verse 18, or it's something else. And we see that in verse 20, which I've yet to read. And as I read it, I want you to listen what it is and who it's for. So for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob. So you see it there. There it is, the Redeemer, the spiritual surgeon. He comes to, to those in Jacob, to God's people. Evil will be destroyed within them. It is those that are in Jacob, in covenant with him, that are part of his people that he will redeem. By the way, that's not the righteous one. And many of you, you beat yourselves up or you allow the evil one or, or the, the evil in this world or the constructive thinking that you've got to condemn you. It's almost like Satan is saying, you're not good enough. You're a failure. Look at your past. And I would encourage you, when you hear those words from Satan, you should just look at Satan and say, Satan, look at your future. You think my past is bad. You look at your future and then leave it alone because your past has got nothing to do with it. The Lord is coming with judgment to deal with evil within you and within the world. If you are God's people, not if you are righteous, because that righteousness comes from him. It's imputed to you. It's given to you. The first coming of Jesus Christ, the righteous one came as a sacrifice. He was nailed on the cross for you. It is done. Your righteousness comes from him. It does not come. None of us are righteous except through him. And what is the mark of these people as they wait? Let's have a look. At the last part there of verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those of Jacob. What are they doing? Who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. And I want you to hear this because we're going to go back and read 12 to 13 because they are words of repentance, words 12 to 13 in this. And I want you to listen to how deep these are. These are not, you know what, I yelled at my wife this morning. You know what, I cheated on a math exam. You know what? I sped. You know what? I killed someone. You know what? I committed adultery. These are not just sins of commission or, or sins of commission. These are getting to the depth of the corruption of our hearts. These are not things we can undo. These are getting to the profound unrighteousness which is within us. And they're repenting. They're saying, 
For our offences, I'm reading from verse 12, for our offences are many in your sight and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquity, rebellion and treason against the Lord, turning our backs on the Lord, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies in our hearts that our hearts have conceived. The corruption is deep. It's ugly. The evil within. So these people, these children of Jacob that are hearing this sermon, Isaiah is saying to them, get rid of any notions that it's your righteousness that's going to do this. It's the hand of God and only the hand of God that's going to do this. And you hear them calling out in hope for the covenant God. And we can see that in the last lines of this. We can see this picture of the coming kingdom, the coming hope. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. This is in the coming kingdom. The evil has been taken out of us. The surgeon has done his work and will not depart from you. And my words that I put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. You see, the evil is cut out of us. And we live in that coming kingdom in the fullness that that corruption has been removed by the surgeon who came in judgment. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The world is a mess. I am a mess. We need you. I need you. Advent waiting acknowledges the mess. We need you. I need you. And waits expectantly faithfully, covenantally, hopefully, for full redemption through the judgment of the second coming. The arm of salvation has found its righteousness in Christ on the cross. And we wait expectantly for it to remove all the evil within this world and within us. And we spend this time of Advent preparing our hearts for that, recognizing the depth of the brokenness and the need and the promise and the faithful waiting for that Savior. Now, when I began, I mentioned before that the song Kumbaya, My Lord, has been sung either as a folk song or used as naive op- in naive optimism or used disparagingly to express cynical realism. And that's true of Advent too. It's easy to wait for Christmas caught up in the naive optimism of the spirit of the season. People seem a little nicer. Hallmark makes a huge profit from selling this sentimentality. It's also easy to be cynical and look at the Christmas season as simply a distraction from or a painful reminder of the intractable, unfixable brokenness in our lives and the world. But this is not the type of waiting we're called to do in Advent. Kumbaya was originally an, American, an African-American spiritual. It was initially sung in the Carolinas and Georgia during the oppression of the Jim Crow era. And Kumbaya comes from the Gula dialect, and it means come by here. Kumbaya, come by here. And it's a cry for help from God. And if you look at all the verses, it's a cry for help from God because of the oppression of the brokenness without and within. It's a deep realization that the only solution to the problem 
is for God to come by here. To save and to redeem. Come by ah, my Lord, come by ah. Come by here, my Lord, come by here. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We wait in expectation for your return. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are coming back. Father, we thank you that that transcends all of the mess, that we don't have to be so despairing or hoping in our own brokenness, that we don't have to look to our own righteousness, that your hand is strong enough, that you will bring the delivery, the surgical redemption, the restoration of your kingdom that we need and we long for. Help us not to be blind to this. Help us to, in this time of waiting reflection, be people of repentance who see our need and people of great trust in your faithfulness and your hand, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond in song together.